All right, folks, what's going on? This is Jake Hofer, and this is the Land Podcast. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. This is a fun one. This is step number three in the Land Land Buyer series that we're doing here. And if you missed the first couple episodes, I'll just give you a quick, quick recap. Step zero was the money, meaning the different types of loans that are out there. So we had two episodes uh, discussing different loan products with banks. Step one is the search for land. So we talk about how to actually go and look for a piece of ground. And then we also had uh, Don Higgins break down what all great parcels have in common. And this episode is with Brett Smith. Step number two, check off the boxes. So we break down things that you should really be considering as you're looking for ground, the do's, the don'ts, the deal breakers, the quote unquote bad foundations, the asbestos filled properties, uh, quite literally or figuratively. And we hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Brett Smith travels all across the country and does whitetail consulting visits. So it's always great to get someone's perspective that goes to a lot of farms and has more than their area expertise and kind of compare different things. So certainly appreciate Brett hopping on here. If you want to get connected with him, you can head over to the description. And before we get into this, a couple quick, quick, quick things here. If you have listened to this and it has helped you in the process of buying ground, let me know. I want to add to the spreadsheet because I want to help 100 people buy their first piece of ground. And you can just send me an email, a message on Instagram, whatever works. And also head over to Linktree. You can head sign up for exclusive resources. So we're going to be building out exclusive, helpful resources that will help you in your land pursuits. And I hope to provide value there. We're building that out. Like I said, there's a quite a few people that have signed up. And we're going to be sending those out here this year. And I think that's it for now. Hope you guys enjoy it. Let's go ahead and get right into the conversation. All right, we're live. I have Brett Smith here. He's just left Indiana with a client for uh, how many how many days were you on that trip? Uh, this trip was, I lose track. I've been on so many trips already <laughs> this year. I think that was a five, five or six day or so. Okay. I'm headed home, for a, headed home for a night and then it's going to be off to Michigan for another week, week or so. Gosh, yeah. It sounds like you're on the road for what what would you say next month you're only gonna be home like four or five days for the whole month even this tonight will be my it'll be one of like three days that i'll be home this entire month it's it's uh it's been crazy so i've been super busy with visiting clients and you know trying to try to see everybody i can but yeah i mean it definitely comes at some you know disadvantage of not being home but yeah, yeah. you gotta pound out the work when you can pound out the work yeah absolutely that's that's the way of owning a business or owning your own business. There's, uh, it's only you. <laughs> it's got to get yep, work done. Exactly. You got to do it. But no. So exactly. for anyone listening here, I guess a quick introduction. We recorded an episode. Gosh, it would have been right before the Corona went real crazy. 2020, uh, February at the Great yep. American Outdoor Show. And, yep. uh, you know, we've worked together, Exodus and, and your company as well. And so tell folks who you are and what you do for a living. Yeah, so my name is Brett Smith, and I own a company called Whitetail Land Management Services. Uh, Whitetail Land Management Services is basically a habitat management company, but we try to pride ourselves in doing some some different things, you know, than what other companies are doing out there. My personal goal, or, 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 or you know, one thing I try to one one thing I try to do is is I I don't like to offer my services in states where I haven't been, don't have experience, things like that, because I find it hard for I don't know I I, I guess it. The way I look at it is that if nobody's ever hunted your state or been to your state, how can they tell you how to improve in your state? Because one of those things that people don't realize, you know, if you haven't hunted a bunch of different places, that places are different. You know, there's some concepts that can be transferred over and whatever else. But I like to 
I like to work in the states that I'm familiar with, and that's probably 10, 12 of them. So that's kind of where I, where I come in, you know, at, at a, a little bit of a different angle, I guess, than some other people out there. Sure. Yeah. So those 12 states, I assume, are kind of the heavy hitting Midwest states and then maybe dipping down. How far south do you go? Uh, down to Tennessee, out west as far as the Dakotas, mm-hmm. and then over to Ohio right now. So everywhere pretty much in between. Sure. Yeah. Nebraska, Nebraska as well. Yep. Good thing that's about where uh, probably 75% of the deer hunters are. So it works out. I guess exactly. You got to get into Pennsylvania. I'm sure that'll, uh, you'll have to head out there and kill one and then you can start helping people out there. That's about it too. I've had a couple of people in Pennsylvania, but I, I mean, I, it's just, like I said, with the way my schedule is, it's hard to even get out that far. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be, a, you know, it'll be in the future though. It'll be on yeah. the list. Yeah, absolutely. How long have you been doing this? And is it your full-time gig? Yeah, full-time gig, and it all kind of started back in 2014. So now it's it's a full-time gig, and like I said, as of right now, I'm running damn near six to seven days a week for the next pretty much until May. I'm I'm booked yeah. solid until May right now, so it, it's go time, you know, pretty much until that point. So yeah, well, appreciate you hopping on and recording during your busy time. Certainly appreciate it. I know it's it's tough to nail people down sometimes, but I know uh, just want to say thanks for hopping on here, but. How many states do you know offhand you'll be at this this year? Will you be at all 12 or a mix of eight or nine? Off the top of my head, I'm sure I'll miss some, but I'll be in Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, Iowa, Illinois, Kentucky, um, Missouri. I don't know if I said that already. Ohio. And I think that, that's what I can think of off the top of my head. Okay. That's a pretty good mix here. So this this episode here, we wanted to bring you on and we're breaking down an entire land transaction from start to finish. So we did step zero in two different variations. So we talked to a lender that deals with recreational loans and we did one that said, hey, if you buy a house with land, you can get a little better loan product. We did step one, which um, gosh, now I'm, <laughs> I have a breaking down, broken down here. We had Don Higgins talking about what makes all great hunting parcels good. And then I talked about the search for the different places you can look. Now it's time to, now that we know the loan products, now we know how to do a good search. Now it's time to check off some boxes. So we figured you travel a lot. You see a lot of different farms and um, it's always great to get someone's perspective that has, I don't want to say worldly experience, but that's the best way I can say it. Meaning you just haven't hunted your backyard your whole life. Um, So let's just dive right into it. In your opinion, what what, which of these are the most important for a 40 acre parcel? And I know that's super vague, but we'll just try to talk in generality. So people can hopefully get some information out of this. So would you say access is the most important thing, the deer neighborhood or the habitat that's there? If you had to say one is the most important. Well, here's the thing, as far as picking the parcel out, I always start with the neighborhood or I start with like this radius and I have these honey holes that Mm -hmm. I look in throughout the country when I'm looking at properties to buy, you know, I have. Oh, we lost you. Hello. This 100-mile radius, this 50-mile properties in particular, so it, it might be in the right neighborhood. But if you can't properly hunt that piece of property, um, you know, more than four or five times a year because your access is from, you know, it's, it's, it's from the east and westerly winds kind of screw you over. You can't get in there on your southwest and northwest winds. Well, then, you know, what good is the property that you spent all this money on if you can't get in there and hunt it properly? 
mm-hmm. those those different pieces of, of of land i mean if you can get in there and hunt them um on those southwest northwest winds you're gonna have a lot better luck getting in there more often and, and having more success but you know a, a tree stand or a location or a property in general is only as good as as many times as you can get in and out of it so yep if, if it comes down to one of those factors i lean on access that's the first thing that when I look at a client's property or anything like that, I see how many access roads do we have? The mm-hmm. more the merrier, and hopefully at least from that from that eastern side for those westerly winds. Yeah, and so you you broke out there for a little bit in terms of the neighborhood. What were those things that you're looking at? I know you and I both know there's different pockets in about every state that has big deer. I mean, there's big deer in every state, and there's little pockets. So what are some pockets that, what are some of those key characteristics that you're able to, I guess, figure out, or if someone's looking at a map, what are some things that people can look at? It's, it's those honey hole areas that I found just through being on the road. And like I said, it's the first thing I look for is maybe that neighborhood or that radius. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, the, it's those honey holes that I've found. Maybe you're looking at some of those private parcels in Northern Missouri or West central Illinois, you know, um, depending if you, if you're a resident in Iowa or not, you know, the Southern portion of Iowa, there's those pockets, but really with, in order to find those exact pockets and find those neighborhoods, you got to spend time on the road. And that's kind of what I've done. So I want, I don't want to give away too much detail as to where those pockets are that I'm looking, but you know, those are the pockets that I'm looking in. And then I'm really dissecting the parcels from there that I can find for sale. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. In your in the in the travels of Whitetail Cribs and Exodus, I know exactly what you're talking about. We may even know some of the same hotspots because there's districts that have, you know, it's like buying into a neighborhood that all has mansions, and then you're you're looking Very for lucky. the shack at the end of the street. So that's yep, pretty that's, much. Yep. So that's that's really cool, and I think that's that's key. Now, in terms of <clears throat> so neighborhood is key. That's number one. Second bucket is access, and then to recap that you would ideally want to have probably an East access or Southeast, Southeast, Southeast <laughs> tongue twister, Southeast access ideally, or what would you say? What's the power ranking there? Yeah. So, I mean, Southeast access is nice. You get in there on those Northwest winds, but in reality, a lot of these coming out on a Southwest. So if it's more important to you as a property owner to get in there and to hunt more often, pay attention to maybe more of that Northeast access versus the, the Southeast. But in a perfect world, I mean, I just picked up a lease um, this past week. It has both the Northeast and Southeast access. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm good for both, um, both situations. Mm-hmm. Now in terms of, so for this, you know, mythical 40 acres in terms of habitat what would you say is best would it be a monoculture that you can go out and carve out pockets or is it one that already has some pockets of diversity of habitat and and enhancing that that's a toss-up and it really depends on where you are in the country and what the neighbors have and that's that plays a big role in this especially if it's only 40 acres Mm -hmm. i don't shy away from from either option i mean obviously in my personal case i know what to do with the land if it's a monoculture let's say i'm just i'm, I'm dealing with you know just straight timber well mm-hmm. i know what i need to do in order to create better pockets within that but for the average guy if i if, if there's already pockets of you know thickets and honeysuckle thickets and some good you know savanna type timber and a little bit of agriculture i think for the average joe that should rank a lot higher than trying to go in and you know just pick a property that has one monoculture and, and try and figure it out unless you're looking to bring somebody in sure. who does something like what I do for, for a living and then they can help you lay things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. There's, there's pros and cons to both of those. Absolutely. In terms Definitely. of, and it, it's crazy how everything is just tied together. Like, yeah, to have all three of those good access, good neighborhood, and then 
habitat that you're able to design how you want, or it's already turnkey. Gosh, to have all three of those pretty darn rare. Would you agree? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, if I see it once or twice throughout a year of visits, that's about it. And even so, then there's still some other manipulations that need to be made or, you know, it's just tree, tree stand location, trail camera location, access routes. You got to work on that stuff always, but it's mm-hmm. pretty damn rare. That's for sure. Yeah. Now we look in, to relate it to people that maybe were shopping for a house at some point. And then most people aren't going to buy, wanting to buy a house that's filled with asbestos and a bad foundation or anything else crazy like that. What are some deal breakers that you would tell someone that's looking for ground and they're trying to figure out, Hey, is this the right parcel for me? What are some screeching halt, turn around, run the other direction deal breakers for you? I mean, we kind of hit on it a little bit. It's that access. If if I don't Mm -hmm. have any sort of access from the easterly side of the property, I'm out. Um, that's an absolute no go for me. Um, if, if it just doesn't have the bare bones, you know, maybe, maybe the topographical features that I look for the, just diversity or potential to be diverse, mm-hmm. you know, where I can maybe squeeze in some food plots or, or you, you just got to look at it from the grander scheme of things. Um, if it doesn't have the potential to be more than just like, so if we talk about the three different, you know, variables of food, cover, water, if I can't get more than one of them on a 40 acre parcel, it's probably not the right piece for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you throw that in there with the proper access routes for predominant winds. And those are things that are kind of pr- probably going to shy away from, from looking at that property and, and start looking for something else. Mm-hmm. Would you say in your visits in terms of, obviously you're helping people set stands and run trail cameras and hunt smart too. Would you say more times than not is it the land that is the issue or is it the actual person hunting at the issue on average? I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely the person I'd say 75% of the time, um, because, and and it's to no fault of their own. People don't know what they don't know, but you start going, for instance, in Hill country, I had a client the other day whose property was Magnum. It was ideal, but he just wasn't hunting it right. Didn't necessarily understand the concept of thermals, how to access, how to kind of manipulate the property and get into certain spots in certain situations. So therefore he, he, he just didn't know what he didn't know. And just simply helping him learn about his own property was something that was kind of Mind. Yeah, I think I might have lost you again here. Driving through the boonies. Boggling for him. And now, now I hit the chain thing. And then obviously there's all that changed everything for that guy alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you driving through the boonies? I lost you there for a quick second, but I think I got the gist there. <laughs> no, no, I'm in, I'm in Milwaukee. I can repeat myself though. But I mean, like, like I said, it's for, for the most part, it's probably 75, uh, 75%. It's, it's more so the people just not knowing how to hunt the parcels, whether it's, mm-hmm. Um, you know, not understanding how to, how to manipulate thermals in hill country, things like that. People just don't know what they don't know. So, um, if I can help them with that stuff, when I go to a property and help them with the habitat side of things, it's generally a win-win. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what you get in a scenario like that. You're getting an education and then you're also probably getting a project list of how to improve it. Now, when, for instance, I, I've, uh, brewed some of your videos and you kind of use a numerical number to describe property. So in terms of let's say someone is looking at a, a three, so that's a lower tier property. Let's say it only has uh, cover right now yep. with, with improvements on average. I know every property is different, but if someone is thinking like, man, I'm kind of looking at a turd here. I don't know if I can make it anything good. Would you say on average, are you able to take it from a three to a seven or a three to a six, a three to an eight by making whatever improvements are needed? Or some of them just like, nope, that's a deal breaker. Walk away, turn around, run, run the other direction. I, 
I literally have this conversation with most of my clients. If, if, if access is bad, I tell them this might be a three and we just can't turn it into a 10 out of 10. Like there's nothing that we can do. But I mean, you talk about if a, if a property only has cover, that's great with me. We can, we can start picking apart that cover, make sense of why the deer are where they are and maybe create some correlating food sources, you know, log some stuff out of it, out a little bit, clear it out. We can definitely work with that. And even if you have, you know, let's say, you know, just a monoculture, just a big, you know, uh, mature timber setting, we can work with that too. It's just a matter of knowing how to work with it. So mm-hmm. those areas are, are a little bit harder to work with. They take time and they take patience, but you can still make something out of those pieces of property. Mm-hmm. So would you say in a perfect world, a three to a, like a seven? If, if, three to if, a if, seven? If, yeah. And that, that today, today's property, I literally told the guy, I said, you know, you're, you're probably sitting at about a two out of 10. If I had to be completely honest with you, with your current situation, there's no reason we couldn't get you to a six or seven. And he, and, you know, he, that was something that he would have been super, super happy with because he already saw, you know, a little bit of the results that he wanted to see on this property, you know, this year, just as is, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and from a habitat standpoint, it was very poor. So the sky was really the limit, um, for him in that particular scenario. But yeah, I mean, a three, you can turn to a seven or even an eight in a certain scenario. It's definitely possible. Uh-huh. Would you say on average, you know, just think of, I'm sure you look at land listings all the time. I bet, especially if you're considering, you know, to buy or, you know, expand your business. What would yep. you say on average, most farms that just hit the market, these are maybe raw untouched, meaning that a deer hunter hasn't quote unquote made it turnkey, which is overused. What do you think on average, most people would be walking into blindly if they're just like, I want to buy something. I'm not super particular yet. This isn't going to be my forever piece. This is just me to get in the ground. On average, what do you think most people just kind of accidentally walk into? Like, are most forms the day you buy it a four or five, or in, or most are they are they lower than that in your opinion? Yeah, I would say they're in that four to five region, and and for the most part, like I said, guys don't know what they don't know. So sometimes, you know, you might pick up a four or five, and right now it might be super poor quality habitat because let's say you have really mature timber and sunlight can't hit the forest floor in certain areas or in any area. So therefore habitat is currently really poor, but I tell you what, if we, if we build that property strategically, there's cases where those properties can turn into 10 out of 10, you know, and especially if they're in the right part of the country and those mm-hmm. little honey holes that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Now while we're talking about access in terms of, uh, you know, East access kind of being the low, lowest, um, or East being the best access, Yep. This past year, there was a lot of east winds. <laughs> so it's like, yep. uh, you know, and I, we had a video that we released on Trocam Radio that was with Perry Russo from Iowa, and he swears by hunting east winds. And I, I would assume it's probably be two things. You know, a lot of times there's an east wind when there's a cold front that rolls in or a storm. And the other thing is, you know, maybe his farm is only good on an east wind. So by him only hunting it, like you said, five times a year, keeping pressure low. I mean, that, that might be a good formula if it's a guy that, only once not five or six times a year. And as long as he has an opportunity at a buck, that's a home run. And I wonder by implementing some improvements, gosh, maybe that's a perfect fit for someone too. So I, would you agree that maybe don't completely discount the access on that, on that front, knowing what maybe your schedule is? No, exactly. I, I wouldn't discount it. Um, it. It's, I mean, I've killed deer on easterly winds. I, I know I've done it. So it's not something that, you know, you should, you know, completely rule out. I would always have some backup options, even if it means, you know, blowing out access to a certain portion of your farm that's less desirable. So you can J hook around and get in a hot spot. Mm-hmm. Um, I would definitely still be thinking about those East winds, keep them in the back of your mind, but they're not at the top of my list either. Sure. Yep. Yeah. The, uh, 
the east i think having an east wind setup is uh sneaky sneaky good um you know they roll in and it seems like it's usually in in correlation with a good uh front and we'll have to link i'll link that video for anyone that wants to watch that uh perry swears by him chances are those locations too you're you're generally not hunting them very often so that makes sense why those those sits might be really really valuable Yep. The, the set that I killed my deer out of this year, I hung it for an East wind. And I think sure. it was, uh, yeah. So that's the key there. So I think those are all very important things. So what would you say are some common mis- misconceptions or myths that need to be debunked when searching for land? And for example, people think a, and I, it's people are starting to catch on, but I think most people think that you need a big block of mature woods to have great deer hunting is, would you agree with that misconception that, that's necessarily not a good thing. My best spot that I've ever hunted, I'll tell you right now, is 4.7 acres. It's <laughs> in the right area. Uh-huh. I, I, I literally, I, I'm not lying to you when I'll get six bucks over 150 on that parcel um, on a yearly basis. And they're traveling through that parcel all times of the year. Every single month of the hunting season, I've had shooter bucks on that parcel. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessary. I mean, in a perfect world, yeah, it's it's a easy thing to lean on, you know, the more the merrier, but at the same time, if you really know what you're looking for, um, you can find these little honey holes. And the thing about the thing that really makes that little piece so crazy is everybody was, I mean, it had hunting pressure. It had, you know, neighbors had dogs. Um, there were gun hunters around and I was still seeing the caliber of deer, you know, like I said, the one forties through one sixties pretty consistently on that piece. So you don't, you don't even need 40 acres. Now I'm not saying everybody can go buy five acres and make it a honey hole like that. It was a rare scenario and it was in the right area, but, um, you know, you, you don't need to, you don't, you don't need to have a huge parcel to consistently get on big deer. You, you're, you're better off maybe having a small parcel in the right area and hunting it smart than having some big parcel and running through it all the time and being there every single weekend, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess we'll kind of, what, what, um, cause that question there is I get people that I, I mean, I've sold the farm and these people thought it wasn't good because then they looked on the satellite imagery. It wasn't big blocks of timber, but when we went out there, there's a ton of edge and a ton of cover. And so it was, it's, I think that's a a misconception that people think like, well, how can it be good? Cause there's not a bunch of timber on it in reality, maybe, (laughs) maybe less is more in that. And, and, like to your point, if you were to buy something like a monoculture of a, basically an oak savanna maybe and clean it up and pocket it out, then gosh, I would imagine that'd be a fantastic property. Exactly. And that was literally what I ran into today with today's client and the way timber prices are right now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If he he cleared some of that out, he was not only going to create the habitat, but put money in his pocket to fund the operation. And that's another thing I try to do with a lot of my clients, especially given the market. If if we can create the habitat and and put money in your pocket, why would we not? And most people, they, they question it when I tell them, that, hey, this is possible because it sounds too good to be true. But right. literally in, in, in the time frame that we're in right now, that people are making tens of thousands of dollars, you know, make, improving their property. Yep. So it's, it's definitely a time and a place where people should look into making those moves if that's what they have interest in. Yeah. So I guess as someone listening to this, as they're shopping, you know, maybe go out and count those trees. How many white oaks are on there and, or better yet, uh, hire a, a forester for a day rate or something, or, um, you know, get a, a better idea what that potential timber value is in terms of how it would relate to a design that will fit your goal of hunting better too. 100%. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing too. I think, you know, just showing farms to people, some people completely 
just, they don't even consider timber as anything like, Oh, I would never cut it. And I don't really care what it's worth. I was like, are you sure? Because there could be a quite a bit of value here and it could improve your, your habitat. Is that something that you have to kind of train and coach your clients to like, it's okay to cut down some trees to make it better and fit your goals. Big time, because it's one of those things they buy this property and they see this, like you said, a big Oak Savanna and you can get up on a Ridge and you can see for 250 yards and like, wow, isn't this beautiful? And I just say, yeah, maybe if it was a park, but from a, yeah. from a deer hunting perspective, <laughs> we got to have different pockets of cover so that different mature bucks can spend more time on the property. If you only got one bedding area on your property and the bully buck comes in, well, then you only got one buck to hunt. So yeah. Um, that, that's one way I think about it, but you, you really have to, you know, push it into people's heads that, Hey, logging might be a really good option here, but maybe they've heard horror stories from bad loggers tearing up properties. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely something to, to weigh out, um, as well. But man, I'm telling you in the, in the climate that we're in right now, if you get a good logger, interview a couple, um, and, and have them come in, as long as you know how to do it strategically, you know, yeah. where to place these bedding areas it's a, it's a jackpot. It's a gold mine. But like I said, if you don't know where to do it and you're just doing it to do it, mm -hmm. you could also epically screw up your property for the next 25 years. Yeah. So it's kind of a catch 22. Yeah, totally. And I, I couldn't agree more And oh, uh, lumber prices right now are just, oh my gosh, crazy. So insane. Yeah. And so someone thinking, you know, seeing these land prices creep up, I'm not saying, you know, you know, whoever, if you're looking, you know, your position, you know, what you're willing to spend and everything else, but if you're able to get some logs off of it and improve what your end goal is, um, where most potential buyers, I don't think aren't thinking that creatively and give you a huge edge. Big time. And like I said, why not create the habitat and fund the operation if at all possible? Like I said, there's other timber stand improvements methods that people use. There's hack and squirt hinge cutting. There's a time and a place for all of them. But man, if you, if you know how to strategically log your property, so you have correlating food sources and, and, and all these other things, think about all the other pieces of the puzzle. It's a no brainer right now. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this, in terms of most of the farms you visit in the Midwest of these, which one do you see most lacking on, you know, on all the farms you've been, is it most farms in the Midwest lack cover food, destination food, or good access? For the most part, it's cover. And yeah. that's why, you know, we, we can, we can do something with that. It's just a longer plan. It's not, it's not as some, it's not as simple as, Oh, let's take this section of CRP. Let's plant it in a good food plot. It'll be great next year. It's a three, four year plan. By the time you have somebody come in and log it, or you, you complete your timber stand improvement project. But mm -hmm. for the most part, it's, it's cover. And a lot of times guys think they have good cover, but in reality, all of a sudden leaf drop occurs and they really don't have as good a cover as they, as they think they did. Sure. And all of a sudden the cornfields are off and everything's off and, you're blowing out deer accessing your property. I mean, in a perfect world, I know Grant Woods talks about this and a couple other guys I've heard say, you know, if I can throw a softball or a baseball and I can go pick it up and find it anywhere in the woods, it's not, it's not <laughs> thick enough. It's not nasty enough cover, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And if you had to pick a time for a, someone to be a prospective buyer for buying ground, would you say right now is the best time to do it? Yeah. That, I mean, the, the, as soon as your, your deer season ends, your, your real estate season should begin, honestly, yes. because the sooner you can pick up that property and hopefully in these, these winter, early spring months, get something logged right away. If you needed to, the more, I mean, the sooner you can get it done, the sooner you're going to see your results. And like I said, it's not always a one year plan. It's sometimes mm -hmm. a three to five year plan. Um, by the time that logging is done and maybe they clear out some food plotting areas, remove some stumps, it's a process, but mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a little bit different in every scenario, but that's, you know, as soon as, as soon as deer season's over, real estate season should, should begin for that's looking. Yeah. Perfect time to do it. And one thing that 
it, it's a it's a lot easier to fall in love with the property in the summer when everything's gorgeous and pretty. So you have to think as other people are going to look at the same farm you are, maybe they don't have the vision of what this place can look like. And like you said, three or five years or B, what it will it look like in the summer? So it's right now farms are about as ugly as they're going to get. Um, you're going to get to see their true colors in terms of the cover. And a lot of, a lot of farms start to feel a lot smaller right now <laughs> with all the leaves and everything, you know, grass that's been knocked down. And it's like, are you sure this is 40 acres? And then if you walked into right. the summer, you would say, Oh my gosh, this has to be 80 acres. This feels huge. Yeah. And, this is this time of year. It's a good, it's a good opportunity to see a, a property's bare bones. That's another yes. way I like to put it. Yep. You can go look at all the past years, you know, this last year's sign. Um, now let's say, let's say you were going to look for a farm and you walked it and let's say I had good access and let's say the neighborhood was questionable. You didn't really know much about it. Um, but there was potential to put in some cover and some food, but there was like hardly any sign on it. And you don't know what the neighborhood is in terms of hunting pressure. Would that scare you away from it? Or would you think, well, and let's, let's just use the 40, just cause I think that's what most people are looking around that, you know, 30 to 60 acres. Would that scare you away? Or would you say, no, I think I have enough here to make, to make it work. Here's the thing in past years that would have totally scared me from, from going in, you know, and, and, and even thinking about hunting a property or not even setting up a stand or anything like that, but just for, through client visits and seeing the deer that they have on camera and then going through and maybe not seeing the physical sign because they don't have the habitat to promote the sign. Like if sure. there's not a lot of good high stem, stem count, thick cover, well, you're not going to see a ton of rubs. You're not going to see a, a ton of sign like that. So sometimes it can be misleading um, you know, you go into a property and you don't see the sign where you think there's no bucks here, but I've been proven wrong time and time again, you know, by looking at, you know, clients trail camera photos and saying, wow, like you have 140, 160 inch deer on this property. But really, I mean, if I were to walk this, I might not think it would, but then it allows me to start picking the property apart and say, okay, this topo feature here, now it starts to make sense. Maybe they were betting here doing this. Um, but unless you have the habitat, it's really hard to see if there's there's, you know, that sign there, but it's, I mean, it doesn't mean the deer aren't there. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. And I think it, it's easy to get caught up in, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, we saw, we counted 45 rubs. This is insane. This is great. And it might've been a two, you know, a batch of two-year-olds that just went in there and tore it up. Um, and, exactly. and obviously you can kind of read what, what sign is and kind of get a vibe of what's considered quote unquote big sign, but no, that's, that's really good insight. And I think that if someone was considering, you know, maybe look at the bigger picture. And then that's the importance in terms of if you ever go to sell a farm, gosh, documenting those trail camera photos are huge. Cause let's say like the same thing that these clients are showing you all these different deer that has to change your opinion completely on the property. And I'm sure it puts a little bit more uh, pip to your step thinking, man, we can really make a great plan versus no, we haven't ran cameras. We don't know what's here. And this is the sign. And you're like, Oh boy, what I get into. And that's the thing you go in there and, it, and it's kind of average to poor habitat, but they have the trail camera pictures ding, ding, ding. In my head, I'm thinking, now think if we build this place, oh, now yeah. think if we turn it into something special, this could be one of those 10 out of 10s. So sure. That's what's going through my head in, in that given scenario. Yeah. What are some, what are some key things that are in a 10 out of 10? And I, and I you know, I, hopefully we're not reiterating what we just discussed, but I guess in short, what is a 10 out of 10? Good access and a, in a 10 out of 10 probably has access on three, four, three out of the four sides of the property. Um, it's well balanced. It's got openings for food plots, um, diversity, pockets of CRP, cover like that. Um, it's got to be diverse. It's, it's got to have a good timber. Um, if I'm in hill country, I want to see different different topo features, ridge points, um, tops of draws as funnels, things like that. 
Um, if I can put all those things together and I got good access to get in there on numerous wins and hunt different portions of the farms at different, uh, uh, you know, at different times, those are things that are really getting me excited, especially when I'm just looking at maps and then you go in there and you see that the habitat's there, you know, there's already pockets of cover. Um, and there's just diversity as a whole and an opportunity to plant some food and maybe get that, that, that property within that five to 10% food range that I like to get it in. Man, that's, mm-hmm. that's the, the bare bones is there. Then all we got to do is implement a small plan. Okay. So you said that five to 10% range for food that would you say those are food plots and de- destination food sources. And then that would remain 90 to 95% cover. So if I, uh, the total breakdown of a property. Yeah, I might have mis- yeah, yeah, misunderstood I, you. Yeah, so for five to ten percent in food, um, there would be some in some in in, in Savannah. I would still leave a, a smaller portion in Savannah just so there is that transition area yep. um, that's huntable. Because if we put it all in cover, if we go ninety-five to ninety percent cover, sure. man, that's a damn that's a damn hard property to hunt. I mean, yeah, you can't can, you can't see 30, 40 yards. It's hard to really get a feel for what's going on. So yeah. if you got pockets of Savannah mixed in as well, that's that diversity I was kind of talking about. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So that would be kind of, I mean, obviously there's probably improvements there, but that would be necessarily kind of quote unquote, more natural natives. You know, what it yep. is, is, is leave it alone. Yep. Cause I think people myself included obsess of literally improving every square inch of the farm thinking that's the only way it can be the best of the best. But in reality, there's probably a, a, a point where it has diminishing returns. Yeah, it's definitely possible. And in reality to make a lot of these properties better, just stay out. It's as simple yeah. as that. Some, <laughs> some people, I get it. I mean, you, you buy a property, you want to enjoy it. And I try to explain that to some clients, you know, maybe you don't have the greatest access on this given win, but I get it. You bought the property and you want to enjoy it. So if you're really diehard about hunting, sometimes it's as simple as just staying out. Yeah. I, uh, I bought a farm last year in, in August and I was on it two times before season and it was the yep. hardest, most self-control thing I've ever had to do <laughs> because it's like, you know, saved up for that point. That's a, was such a big goal of mine in a, in a dream. Yeah. And it's like, gosh, dang it. You know, I would drive by it all the time. <laughs> so I roll slow and peek at it, but it's like, uh, so I'm almost a little bit relieved that deer season's done now here in Illinois, because now I'm, I'm farting around all the time because I didn't really get an opportunity to spend any time on it, but yeah, that's, that's such a huge thing. And it's so, they don't go together. Like, like you said, whoever, whoever buys a piece of ground has made a lot of sacrifices and has worked extremely hard to do it. Like it just doesn't come naturally. And then you say, well, now you can't enjoy it. Quote unquote, (laughs) you can, because you're hoping to shoot here, but gosh, yeah. You have to keep, keep the goal in mind for sure. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, it's, it's a, it's a fine line between enjoying it and and overdoing it. So it's one of those things you got to keep in mind if your goal is really to kill big deer or kill deer consistently. Yeah. In a perfect world, you have a tinker farm and a, stay the heck out of farm. <laughs> and you can take, exactly. You can exactly. tinker on the one and leave the other one alone. But no, that's, that's definitely interesting. So on average, Midwest farms, they are typically lacking cover. So that's definitely helpful. And then let's see, would you rather, and I know the math doesn't add up and there's a reason for it. Would you rather have three 15 acre parcels or one 50 acre parcel? And the reason why it's not 45 is because obviously Smaller parcels usually cost a little bit higher premium. If you had to pick three fifteens or one one fifty, what would you pick? That's a no brainer for me from a hunting standpoint. Uh-huh. I'm picking the three fifty. I'm picking the three fifteens all day long because a fifty acre parcel to me isn't big enough that your neighbors still can't screw it up. Like your neighbors yeah. can do, still definitely screw it up, and you're only if you're only stuck with that fifty 
and they screw everything up. They're riding around on four wheelers. They're shooting mm-hmm. guns. And it's, it's going to have an impact on a pretty large section of, of your 50 acres. Whereas if I if they screw it up and they're my neighbor on 15 acres, okay, I got option B. And after mm-hmm. that, I got option C. So it's it's not hard for your neighbors a 50-acre parcel, whereas if it's only that 15-acre parcel, it takes three best to really screw things up, and then you just have bad luck in that case. But, right. Oh. I, I was just saying that I would, I would, lean, I would rather lean on those 15-acre parcels because it yeah. takes three bad neighbors in that scenario to screw up that, that you know, that uh, th- those three properties. Uh, that 50 acres could be screwed up by one bad neighbor and screw mm-hmm. up the majority of it. Um, and you know, and in that, in that case, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of screwing yourself over by only having one piece. Yeah, absolutely. And I think most people, maybe just from a conversation perspective would rather say, Oh, I own a 50 versus, Oh, I have three 15 acre parcels, which makes no difference, but I'm, I guarantee some people's mind think that way. And I would say that's, that's a very relatable and understandable thought because if you're able to get, you know, kind of handpick or maybe go hound some 15 acre deals where they are in the right location, like your five acre parcel that you were referring to. Gosh, yep. I'd, I'd take, I would just take three, five acre parcels versus the 50 from the sounds of how that farm was. I would take that five acre parcel over a lot of 160 acre parcels, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, that's this. A... Oh. Am I lost you again? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the reality of that situation. Yeah. Yes. Can you hear me? Yep. Uh, yep. We're good now. I don't know if it's okay. my mixer here. Or... It, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm right in the middle of the city, so I definitely I got full bars and everything here. I'm I'm, I'm good on my end. I think. Hmm. Strange. Um. Well, it is what it is. Technology. Technology's fighting us yeah. here. So no, I yeah. I totally agree with that. And what made that five acre parcel so good? I know you mentioned there's there's dogs, there's people that shoot shoot guns, and there's hunting pressure. What do you think made that parcel so special? Um, it was a really nice pocket of cover, you know, around a little bit of agriculture, around, around, you know, some good topo features. It was just an intersecting property. Mm-hmm. It was a place that, you know, through all the exterior parcels, these deer were always passing through. It had nasty, thick um, honeysuckle thickets in it. The bedding area, it, it haunted more like a 40. Like it was so yeah. thick that you could get in 17 different stands on the thing. It felt like sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it was a good intersection and it really had good cover. So the deer weren't betting far away from it all at all in the first place, but they were always intersecting through it as as well uh, on their way to destination food sources. Yep. Absolutely. I, I leased a, I leased a tiny, tiny, tiny parcel this past year, just because I knew what was around there. And I'm telling you, uh, if you saw some of the deer that were on camera, you would say, wow, that was all just from that little parcel. And it's, you know, the same thing kind of those attributes that you mentioned. So anyone that's listening, you know, jot those down and definitely consider them. And I think that you can get more bang, you know, more for your money by maybe being precise with the, with the smaller parcel that you pick too. Definitely. I mean, like I said, that parcel, it had one sixties on it. The neighbor killed the one seventy five, and it wow. happened every couple of years too. So there, mm-hmm. there were a very large deer and on a map, you just wouldn't know, you know, you, you, I feel like I get a good grasp, but looking at maps sometimes, but you don't always know by looking at a map. Sure. And that yeah. was a prime example of that as well. Yeah. So what about, let me ask you this. So as you, I'm sure you look at your client's farms before you go, go there. How often are you deceived in terms of you, you think of, okay, this is kind of what I'm going to suggest them to do. And then you walk in, and you're like, wow, this is a lot different than what I thought out of, you know, 
what percentage does that happen in terms of client visits? Um, honestly, I would say it's pretty 50, 50. And here's the thing. If there's certain topo features on a farm, there, there's only certain places that maybe you can plant food or there's certain places that you can strategically sure. put bedding so that deer can bed there um, on, on predominant weights, things like that. So when I'm in hill country, I can tr- generally get a really good feel and it kind of gives me some self-confidence. Sometimes I had a client two or three days ago where I preliminarily, you know, put things in certain places and I was damn near hundred percent on, but sometimes there's, there's, sometimes there's variables, like you don't know how thick something is or, or different things like that, or, you know, how the neighbors are that you got to adjust things, but I'd say it's a good 50, 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that seems pretty fair. So let me ask you this in a bigger ag scenario. So some of these Midwest States where ag is nearby, it's not the big woods. So in a bigger ag scenario, what is the minimum food plot size, um, for that type of property for grain? So someone that wants to, cause everyone wants to plant corn or beans. It's everyone thinks that's the silver bullet, the magic thing. So what do you think is the minimum requirement to keep up with browse pressure, pressure, which I know is dependent on the, the, the deer herd in the area, but in general, what is your minimum? Is it an acre, two acres, three acres? No, normally for some sort of destination food source, which is what I'm putting in. If I'm, if I'm putting in grain, I'm looking at around three acres. Now there's a couple other variables. You know, you look at deer numbers, you look at whether you're going to fence it off or not. Um, mm-hmm. Whether you're going to use products like Melorganite, which is like a biosolid fertilizer um, made from human waste. It's heat treated. That'll keep deer off your soybeans longer. So you got to factor in all these different variables, but in farm country, generally about three acres, because for the most part, hopefully those deer stay off your plots. Uh, you know, up until everything else is harvested. But in reality, if your plots are tucked back in the timber, they might be the first plots to get hit. That -hmm. might be the issue. So um, a minimum three acres. And, you know, if you really have bad browse pressure, I'm leaning more on corn than soybeans, just because you're getting more forage per acre, really. And and it's not as attractive during all parts of the season where they'll wipe it out right away. So it's, it's a little dependent, but around the three acre mark. Sure. Okay. And what was, what was that product that you said you spread on it? Malorganite. So you can get Malorganite at your local like Home Depot or Lowe's, anything like that. You go in like the, the gardening section and when you plant soybeans, it'll keep those deer off those soybeans, um, you know, up until they're about eight, 10 inches tall and at least get them, allow them to get a head start. Yeah. Um, but if your deer numbers are too high, it doesn't matter anyway, but it, it allows them to, you know, get a little bit of a head start at least. Do you find that to be pretty effective then in terms of just getting them? Cause gosh, it doesn't take long for a deer to nip you know, three inch soybean plants <laughs> go down the row. Gosh. So does that help quite a bit in your experience? Oh, 100%. Like it's, yeah. it's one of those things. It's like a magical product. Like it's going to keep them off of it for, for, uh, you know, two weeks. But if you get a bunch of rain, think about it this way, mm-hmm. it's going to wash it all away. So you got to stay up on it, but it really, I mean, before prices really started skyrocketing in, in all markets, you could get a, a bag of it for a couple dollars. Wow. So, I mean, and the nice thing is, is it's also fertilizer. Yeah. So, um, it's kind of a win-win from that standpoint too. You're supplementing the soil and keeping the deer off your food plots until that prime time when you want to be in there. Yeah, that's, I'm, uh, that's, a, that's a good tip. I wrote that down. Um, what about, so someone that's listening to this and maybe a more big woods or less agricultural, um, property, would you say that minimum requirement for acres goes up for an area that is needs to be four or five acres? I lean towards five. And, okay. and like I said, if, if, the, if, the, if those deer don't know, and, and that's hard to do because if you're in big timber country, where are you going to find five acres to plant? And <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's why, enough. you know, maybe, right, exactly. So, um, 
you know, maybe that's in a plan for when you have a logger come in, you clear cut X amount of acres, because here's the thing in big woods country, when those deer find the food source and it's that big and it's that predominant, it's that attractive, they aren't leaving. So you need to be ready to, to hold that many deer, hold 20 mm-hmm. deer a night in that food plot, because, you know, if you're not fencing it and you're not using malorganite, you're not using some of these other products to keep deer off your food plot. You're just, you're wasting your time because it's not going to make it even to the deer season or very far through the deer season, depending on where you are in the country and how many deer are, are you know, in your neck of the woods, things like that. Um, you know, there's a couple of different big wood scenarios. I think of there's Northern Wisconsin, Northern Minnesota, Northern Michigan. And then, you know, once you get into Ohio, the deer density is a little bit better than those areas. Still, it's still a big wood scenario in, in some areas, but um, you know, it's all dependent on the area too, a little bit. Sure. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I think that some of the biggest mistakes I think people probably do is plant those soybean plots in too small of, uh, plots. And they're like, man, this, this didn't work. It was just either because there's not, not enough supporting food or everything else that goes along with it. And and here's the thing, I guess, if you go and kill your buck opening day, great. But at the same time, if you're trying to plant a food plot to replenish your deer all the way through the season, that's when you need the, the three to five acres, you know, depending on where you are. If that's not your goal and maybe you want to kill opening day buck, well, then maybe you only need an acre of soybeans. But I try to plant for the whole season personally. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. So is, do you have a favorite food source in general that you suggest most uh, with client visits? Yeah, in a perfect world, it's a little bit of a, I mean, it's a little bit of a complex um, food source, but having some sort of mix of grain and greens all in the same food plot. So if you go in and you plant your grain a little bit later than most people, you know, most farmers do, you put your grain and you fence it off at about, you know, a seeding rate of maybe 50 pounds per acre. You don't want to overseed it because you don't want it to be too thick because come July or August, what I'm going to do is I'm going to double the seeding rate of what my green blend normally is. And I'm going to green blend right over the top of that. I'm just going to broadcast right over the top of it. And let's say you only got a one acre area. As long as you get good seed to soil contact from a rainstorm in late July mm-hmm. or August, then all of a sudden you got a, you know, you got two acres of food in a one acre area. Sure. And, you know, you talk about plants like soybeans, soybeans create their own nitrogen. Well, your turnips and a lot of your bulbed plants need a lot of nitrogen. So it's almost like rotating crops within the same food plot as well. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of, you're building soil structure as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So what, what, so some of those green sources are turnips or are you planting rye or, or obviously it depends on the property, but I guess what's your magic formula? Uh, green marines are normally like daikon radishes, purple top turnips, mm-hmm. rape, brassicas, um, maybe some winter peas in there. And then I'm, I'm going to make sure I have clover, chicory, and alfalfa in there as well. Because when I do a food plot plan, it's a 365-day gig, gig for me. I want a green food source to be popping up as soon as spring rolls around too. Mm-hmm. And the perk is, with a lot of these blends, if you, there's enough clover in it, you can just leave the, the plot the next year and it'll turn into a clover plot if you don't want to restart the process. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So, and, and that's your strategy in terms of, cause I know there's, there's varying opinions on that in terms of having a property that holds deer year round or versus I guess managing for deer year round versus focusing on the season. And you are more on the side of for the full season or, or for, excuse me, full 365. Yeah. In a perfect world, but that's not for every client. I mean, sometimes yeah. you don't have enough area to really have to, for, to make that plan work. So it's, it's client dependent, but in a perfect scenario, I, I personally would rather have that 365 day food plot so that I can help replenish those deer, you know, put on that body weight, put on that body mass. And the sooner that they put on that body weight and that body mass, the antler production can start to reoccur. And in an ideal, in an ideal world, you have more healthy deer that way. Sure. That 
can't, I cannot argue that logic. That makes sense. So yep. let's see, is there anything else that people should really have at the top of their mind when they're, they're pre-approved, they have gone through the land syndication sites and they're looking to buy something. And now they're just kind of doing a pre-checklist or even a post-checklist after viewing the property of things like they need to be asking themselves these questions. Be honest with yourself. If you, if you really, if you really don't know how, how to properly design the property, bring in somebody and don't be afraid. And, I, and I'm not saying this to promote myself, bring in sure. anybody. It doesn't have to be whitetail land management services. It could be anybody out there. Bring in somebody that has a good understanding of the property so that you get it right the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause if you go in and like we talked about timber, you, we might've just excited a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. We're like, Oh, I, I better get a logger in here now, but you can absolutely screw up your property too. If it's not done strategically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of different variables that go into that. So be honest with yourself, you know, if you're comfortable with certain things, go ahead and, and implement those things. But if you're a little unsure, maybe get a second opinion or, or talk to some other people before you really pull the trigger on some projects. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. So be honest, use your resources, check the access. Maybe by having someone come look at it, you have an idea of, let me ask you this. If someone wanted to send you just a digital map or maybe even the, the listing itself where you can look at the pictures in the habitat, is that something you do? Be like, oh yeah, um, I think you. I think this is something you, we can play ball on, or nah, I would, I would keep looking. Yeah, I, I do that from time to time, and, and at least just if, if people are looking to purchase a property, um, in, in that case for sure. But as far as like designing an entire sure. property, like well, yeah. I said, I'm about fifty. I'm yeah. about fifty fifty, so I could be doing something completely wrong because I yes. just don't know what what's there, boots on the ground wise. But it yeah. is something I, I do on the side a little bit. If people are trying to look for that per- perfect piece. I help consult them, I guess you could say, throughout that process, making sure that the bare bones are there from an aerial map, at least. Yep. Something you, yeah. And I think, I think that's key of being honest with yourself. I think everyone thinks they want to try to hunt Boone and Crockett deer every year, but yep. in the reality of it is, I, I think most people are probably happy to shoot 130 or 140 inch deer every year. So obviously those are probably two different types of properties in two different neighborhoods and probably two different price points. So those are all things that are really important. And you hit it on the head. It depends where I am personally. I mean, yeah, I do this professionally, but I'll be honest with you. If I'm hunting Northeast Wisconsin and a nice 125 Pope and Young buck comes in great. That's, that's, that's going to make my season in Wisconsin. But if I'm hunting Kentucky, I'm probably waiting on a 150 minimum. You know, it's all dependent on where you are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's key. And that, that ties right back into being honest with yourself, but any, any other parting piece of advice that people need to, to jot down on their buyer's checklist? Like I said, be honest with yourself. And if, if, you look, if, if you have interest in building your property, get somebody out there that has experience in it. Because especially in the time frame that we're in right now, there is money to be made, whether it's through government programs, whether it's through logging, whether there's a lot of different options. Just, I mean, don't be, don't be afraid to ask for help and, and get other people out there to get a second opinion because a small investment of bringing somebody on to come look at your property might result in tens of thousands of dollars in profit to build your property and ultimately pad your pockets and make the property better. So yeah, my, that's, that's the uh, biggest thing that I can scream, scream, scream to the crowd right now. Sure. Yeah. Get, get, get it while the timber's hot here. There's only, yeah. do you ever, do you ever drive around and think, man, how much, how much quote unquote old growth timber is there really even left? Because if with, with these prices, there's been a lot of people that are, have been cutting and then you start thinking, and I walk a, a decent amount of properties during the year. And it's like, you can tell as soon as you walk on a farm, like, wow, that has some really old growth. And then 
I would say 90% of farms do not have old growth. So that's one other thing that I just, I always ask myself as I'm walking around, like, wow, how old is that tree? Yeah. Oh yeah. And you, you really see it on those, on those properties that have no undergrowth at all. Like you look up and oh, that yeah. canopy is just what seems like a mile high and you're like, wow, the, the, you know, these trees have been around for a super long time. So that's definitely something I see from time to time, but not as often as you think. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, that's, that's all wonderful advice. And I think the most thing that people miss misvalue is the timber in terms of what it could go into your pocket or what it could mean for your goals. And then if there is enough, well, maybe, yeah, you get to improve the property. And maybe if you're just buying that property right now, can recoup some of that cash to put down for the down payment too. Oh yeah. And it, like I said, it can be a considerable amount. It might only be five, 10,000, but if, if, if you got a big enough property, it might be a hundred thousand dollars. You just don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know. So bring yep. somebody in and get some help, even if it's a forester, somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time here. I really appreciate it. And um, I'll give you a chance to plug yourself, but I'll say this. I really enjoy uh, watching some of your YouTube videos and uh, proud to have you you know, work with Exodus. And uh, you can head over to your website. Is it whitetaillandmanagementservices.com? Yep. Yeah. And so I'll give yeah. you, I'll pass the baton on to you so, to take it from there. Yeah. So the company's Whitetail Land Management Services. We're uh, on Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. We're in the process of really trying to build that YouTube channel now. So now we're we're putting out content twice a week, just on informational videos, things like that. So go ahead and hop on the uh, the YouTube channel, subscribe and like. We're always good. We're, we're going to start doing some pretty big giveaways on that front. And other than that, that's pretty much all I got. And like I said, I I'm, I'm glad to be you know working with you guys as well. You guys are one of the top camera companies out there, and there's no place that I'd be you know rather working with. So I, I'm I'm happy on all fronts. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it and uh, safe travels. And I'll link some of your resources where people can hunt you down and uh, safe travels for the rest of your trips here too. I appreciate it, man. All right, there you guys have it. Thank you once again to Brett for hopping on and recording this episode. And also, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a written review. Gosh dang it, it really helps us reach more people. It is not a vanity number. It's simply trying to help more people and spread the information that we have here to help empower and inspire other folks to uh, basically be more savvy in their land pursuits. So whatever that means to you or anyone else that listens to this. Also, you can head over to Linktree and sign up for the email newsletter. And let's see what else. We're going to be at the Harrisburg Show, Great American Outdoor Show, uh, Exodus. We'll have a booth in the Archery Hall. So if you're going to be at the show, be great to meet up. And if you want to record a podcast in person, we're trying to reschedule all those out as well. So I'll leave you with that. I hope you guys have a great and wonderful week. Until next time, see ya.